After Paul left Athens, he went across to the other side of Greece to a place called Corinth, where we read in chapter 18, verse 1, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and he went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. So we have a husband and wife team, Aquila and Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was constrained by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and he said to them, Your blood be upon you or be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. This is what he said. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. Paul left Athens, went 53 miles to the west, to a sprawling seaport on the sea known as Corinth. One thing about Paul, and it's something that I've always admired as I read the Scriptures, and that is he was not a quitter. Though he had his times, and he said, I was pressed above strength beyond measures so that I even despaired of my life. He didn't give up. In fact, at one point in a free translation, he said, because I have been given a ministry to perform, I will not give up. Because God has something in store for my life, I refuse to cash it in and fall prey to depression and quit. I'm going to go on. He kept going. He was persevering. Every time I read the writings of Paul, I personally am encouraged to go on because there are times, are there not, in the Christian life where you're pursuing something you feel God has called you to do. Something happens, you get discouraged, and you feel like quitting. You're witnessing to your family, to your friends. And just when you think you're making a little bit of progress, they just slam the door right in your face. And you say, you know what, I just, I'm just going to give up witnessing to them or to most people. I'm tired of this rejection. I'm tired of this uh, set of trials every time I try to do God's work. But Paul refused to quit. Because I've been given a ministry to perform, I will not give up. There was a kid back in the Midwest, two kids, who offered to shovel snow in the wintertime. I don't know if you've had the blessing of shoveling snow in areas like that. But I remember one time I went back to visit my wife's family in Michigan, and it's the first time I had seen that. And so as soon as I arrived, I said, Kay, can I shovel the driveway? And they looked at me like, you must be an idiot. They said, go for it. Go, go do it. It took me one time of doing it to be cured. 
Well, there was a story of a couple kids who in the Midwest would go from house to house and would offer to shovel snow for $2 a driveway. And there was a man standing out in his driveway shoveling snow. And the kid said, Sir, I'll shovel your driveway for $2. And the man looked at him like, Well, what do you think I'm doing? And so he said, Well, I'm doing it myself. Why, why would you ask me to do it when I'm doing it? And the kid said, Because most of our customers we get are people who start doing it and halfway they get exhausted and they want somebody else to finish it. Well, there's a lot of us are that way. We start on an endeavor for God and when times get rough and the snow gets a little too deep, we want to quit. We want to cash it in. Now, Paul could have cashed it in. He's been in Lystra and Derby, and he was stoned and they left him for dead. He'd been beaten and persecuted in Philippi. And he went from place to place and suffered so much rejection, but he wouldn't quit. He was given a ministry to perform and so he said he would keep going on. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Don't know how far we'll get tonight, but Paul's ministry at Corinth was an important one. Just read First and Second Corinthians. That'll tell you. What Paul saw there caused him enough grief because he saw the kind of city it was in and enough concern to stay there and plow the ground that it's worth recounting just what kind of a place it was. First of all, Corinth was on an isthmus. It's a hard word to pronounce. Isthmus. Remember that from your geography classes? It's a narrow neck of land that connects two bodies of water. Greece is divided, really, into two sections, east and west. And there's a narrow neck of land called the Corinthian Isthmus that, con that connects two seas together. In fact, uh, in the ancient days, it was so dangerous to sail around the Cape, the Malian Cape. It was 250 miles by ship if you sailed it. It was five miles by foot if you walked it, walked right across. And so people would even take their boats and place them on rollers and roll them and have a crew roll them five miles across the land on a road rather than sail the Cape because it was so dangerous to sail. In fact, they said, if you're a sailor and you want to sail around, you better have your will filled out. And so people would walk across that landmass into Corinth. It became a cosmopolitan city filled with new ideas, filled with shopping malls and areas to uh, get almost anything from anywhere in the world. It became a religious center. It became a center for the flesh. It was a lewd, wicked city. One of the major areas of worship was the temple of Aphrodite up on an Acropolis, a hill overlooking the town. The temple at Aphrodite had a thousand priestesses who were prostitutes who would march down into the city and seduce men to quote-unquote worship with them, charge them a fee for uh, prostitution, and with the money they would fund the temple at Aphrodite. Corinth was so wicked that it became a byword. In fact, you would call a person sort of as a chop, a Corinthian. And it became known as someone who is lewd and drunk and just sort of a party animal. Oh, look at he's a Corinthian. Because it was such a lewd place. However, as wicked as it was, a church was established there. A church was established there and it was a very carnal church, 
but it had great potential. And in fact, it was a very spiritual church. The spiritual gifts flourished at Corinth. Paul said, I write to you, but and you come behind in no spiritual gift as you wait for the appearing of Jesus Christ. But it was a church that had a lot of problems. It was one of the hardest places to be a Christian because of the wickedness and the lewdness and the kind of activity that went around. But, here's the principle, light shines in the darkest places. Jesus said, a city that is set upon a hill cannot be hid. And men, when they light a lamp, they don't put it under a basket, but they set it up so it gives light to the whole house. And so he said that we are the light of the world set upon a hill to be a torch or a lamp in a dark place. And Corinth was black, but the church shined brightly and had great potential. You and I are called to be lights in a dark place. When you're in a broad daylight, when you're in, the, in, in, a, in a lighted space, 12 o'clock noon, on a sunny day, do you take a flashlight outside, turn it on and try to see? You don't need it. What good is the light? I mean, there's light everywhere. But you take a flashlight out when there's no moon, when there's no stars, when it's dark outside, and you can see that flashlight for quite a ways. Now, we all get together at church services, and we get together at Christian retreats, and we fellowship, and we need that, but it's like a bunch of flashlights getting together, and where the light really counts is outside this place, once our batteries are recharged, to shine the light in a dark place. This city is a dark place. Almost every city in America looks a lot like Corinth. Our society is a Corinthian society, very dark, spiritually, which gives us the greatest potential to shine and to make an impact, to really live the Christian life and proclaim the gospel where it really counts. And so Paul saw a church that was established in Corinth, and we read about some of the principal founders of it, Aquila and his wife Priscilla. At the same time, it's very difficult to live a Christian life in a country like ours. Now, we often hear about mission areas. We hear about China. We hear about Russia. We think, oh, it must be hard living the Christian life there. In many ways, it's tougher here. And I've spoken to Christians who live in India and in China and in parts of Asia, and they say, you know, we're praying for you. You're really the suffering church, they say. Because of the temptations that are around you in America to compromise your faith, it's so easy for you to fall away and be caught up in their system, in their way of thinking, in their lewdness. We're praying for you, they told me. We're praying for the church in America that you become strong. It's difficult to live a Christian life in this kind of a country. It's easier to preach the gospel in public schools in Russia, as we've shared with you, than it is in America. It was to the church at Corinth that Paul wrote these words. After painting the background to you, you'll be able to appreciate this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, 
nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. He just described the citizenry of Corinth. Those were the people that these Christians saw every day. And notice what he says. And or if you're looking at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, and such were some of you. In other words, that's your background. You came from the darkness. You worshipped some of you at the temple of Aphrodite with a thousand priestesses. You were involved in the commerce of the city and you were taken up in the materialism. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So it was a dark city, but it had great potential for a church. Evangelism could be summed up by the simple phrase that Jesus said. So let your light shine that people will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What's evangelism? How do I lead people to Christ? What's the best method? Give me a, a little course on how to do it. Let your light so shine among men that people will see your good works and they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. Live your life in such a way you're always giving glory to the Lord. People are seeing what you do and you're saying, hey, it's just the Lord in me, man. God's just so good. That's evangelism. And if that is your mindset, you don't have to have little courses on how to do it. It'll just happen. It'll be so spontaneous. It'll ooze out of you. I find that the most effective evangelism in this church is not done by me. It's done by you. Now, a lot of times you'll invite people to church. And I'll get to have an altar call and you'll see them come forward. It's, so what? I, I just got to give an altar call. You've been laying the groundwork. You've been putting the seed in their heart. You've been inviting them, letting your light shine before them. I get the easy part. I get to have the altar call. And it might look like, wow, that was really effective. No, it's, it's the effectiveness that you've been doing all throughout the week and the months. You've been letting your light shine. I got a phone call this last week from a magazine called Leadership Journal. It's put out for Christian leaders all over the country. And they said, hey, listen, we've heard about your church, that it's growing rapidly, and it has been. Tell us about evangelism. We're doing an article on evangelism. And uh, what are some of the techniques and methods that you use? And uh, I had to scratch my head and go, well, um, we have a basic philosophy. And the basic philosophy is that healthy sheep reproduce. And by that we mean we don't have to take sheep and beat them and condemn them and say, you rotten sheep. You haven't been leading eight people to Christ this week. And God's mad at you. And, and beating them down, all we have to do is feed them and lead them to the Word of God and teach them the Word of God. And they get strong by that. As they're fed and they're nourished, they become strong sheep. And they naturally, without cajoling them or beating them or kicking them, they just go out and share the life that's in them. They'll let their light so shine among men. People see their good works, glorify their Father in heaven. And they'll lead people to Christ or they'll bring others to Christ. It's just the natural result of, of health. And so the primary focus of a church is teaching the Word of God and letting the sheep become the evangelist. That's what Paul said. The pastor teacher is to teach the flock so that they do the work of the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4. 
And so that's what happened with Paul and Corinth and uh, just letting their light shine. Quilla and Priscilla and the rest just let their light shine. In verse 2, we read about some of the helpers. Uh, Aquila, his wife Priscilla, they had to leave Rome because Claudius commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. There was an anti-Semitic movement going on in the Roman Empire that caused the Roman government to just be very repellent against Judaism. And they wanted to banish Jews from the city of Rome and they moved them to the outskirts of the empire. But God's hand was in it. God wanted Aquila and Priscilla to meet Paul in Corinth and to hear the gospel. So because, verse 3, he was of the same trade, that is, he was a tent maker, taking goat's hair and leather and making tents, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Every Saturday got up, went to worship in the synagogue, and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was constrained by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul the Apostle was considered a rabbi, and every rabbi had to have a trade. In fact, the Jewish people put such a premium on having a trade that the Jews had a saying. They said, every father who does not teach his son how to work teaches him how to steal. They placed a premium on good, hard work. And you had to have a trade. And rabbis had a trade so that they could be itinerant. They could move from place to place, establish their business, and teach in the synagogue. And Paul the Apostle did that. He funded himself. He was a tent maker. Now, when... Who was it? The, yeah, Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia. We know by reading 2 Corinthians that they brought with them financial support that enabled Paul, after a period of time, to quit his full-time ministry and be funded by the gifts of the churches in Philippi and Macedonia. But until that time, he followed the rabbinical way of just working for a living and sharing the gospel until he could be supported. Now, there's a lesson to be learned in that. When I was first seeking to get into the ministry, and I really didn't know what it entailed, but I wanted to be prepared for it. I went to my pastor, Chuck Smith. I said, Chuck, I want to be in the ministry. What do you suggest? He said, learn a trade. I thought, no, that's unusual advice. I mean, I expected to hear him say, go to seminary or let somebody disciple you or do this way. But he said, get a trade so that if God and when God calls you in the ministry, you'll be able to use that trade when a church starts. And until the time that it's able to support you and a staff, you've got a trade. You can just go in and be self-sufficient. And that's exactly what I did. It was great advice. I started learning the ministry and taking courses in discipleship and leadership while I worked in radiology. And I learned the trade. And hey, the human body is the human body wherever you go in the world. Uh, people have skulls and ribs and bones and feet. And so it's pretty much the same. If I learned that trade, I could take it anywhere. So I learned it. And when I came to this fair city, I was able to land a job at an office across from St. Joseph's Hospital and practiced the trade until the ministry got up to about 250 or 300 people. Then I was able to quit and uh, get together a staff and go full time. But it's good advice. If you're seeking to get into the ministry, to get into a trade and be self-sufficient. I was called this week by a few of you who were asking about the possibilities in Russia. I'm excited about what God's going to do in Russia. 
But you called and you asked me a whole lot of questions I don't know the answer to. I kind of shared everything I knew last week. We're still waiting uh, to hear, and I'll know more information in the next uh, few weeks. But a couple people said, I'm interested in going to Russia, and my background is in as a teacher, or my background is in physics, or I'm a professor, or whatever your occupation is. And I was wondering, could I go to Russia working? And I thought, now that's a good idea. Because when they invite you, and they do invite Americans to come to many countries, especially if you have a worthwhile trade, you're contributing to the country, you have in many of those countries more freedom. Because you're teaching some of the people in that country your trade. And you're able to get in there by the government. They'll pay you a wage. You're supported by the government. And you're essentially doing what Paul did. You're a tent maker. You go over there to preach the gospel. That's your calling. But under the guise of your job, being a tent maker. And I think that's wise if you can do that. Uh, it's definitely a certain, it's definitely one of the uh, avenues for missions. I think it's a very effective way. Paul did that until he could be uh, supported. And then he split. In verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue. Now, that was always his method, wasn't it? To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. He started with the Jews until the Jews had enough, and we read that they did. They opposed him, verse 6, and blasphemed, and so he shook his garments. Can't you picture Paul? He's got his robes on, and he just... Here's these Jews blaspheming him, contradicting him, opposing him. He just starts shaking his clothes real hard. And he says... Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, I want you to look back in verse 5 before we cover that. We'll just cover a couple verses and we'll have to quit. In verse 5, it said that Paul was constrained by the Spirit. I looked that up and I found that it really means this. Paul was occupied fully with preaching. He was engrossed with the Word of God. Another translation says, he was completely possessed by his message or engrossed in his message. Paul came to Corinth and Paul knew that he had to give himself totally to the Word of God and know his message because there's going to be Jewish people, Greeks are going to ask him questions, they're going to oppose him, and he has to be on his toes. As soon as Paul and Silas come, as soon as he is released full-time, he gives himself to his message. It's not in the Scripture, but there are some documents that circulated around the first century by Gamaliel that we read about in the book of Acts. Paul studied under the Jewish rabbi Gamaliel who was held in high esteem in Jerusalem. Gamaliel said that Paul was one of his favorite students. But the only problem he had with Paul the Apostle is that Paul couldn't find enough books. He was always thirsting to read more books, more commentaries, more literature. We read when Paul is in prison in, t in the book of Second Timothy at the end of his ministry, he says, bring my cloak and bring my parchments. He wanted to read. He was studying. He gave himself in this city to his message. Getting back to the call that I had this week from Leadership Journal. They said, you know, your church is really um, growing and we hear that people are coming to Christ and let's talk about evangelism. And I kind of shifted and started talking about the ministry of the teaching of the Word of God. 
It is essential. I say this for the benefit of any of you who feel like you're called into the ministry. I say this for the benefit of any of you who feel like God is leading you to pastor a church someday. And I'm also saying this for the benefit of you who wonder why when you try to call me for a counseling appointment, it's tough to get through. I feel strongly that my time, most of it, must be occupied. I have to budget it, make allowances for family, other ministry. Most of it should be toward the studying of the Word. And I should give myself to my messages so that I'm able to share from the overflow of what I learn. When John MacArthur, out in Southern California, was offered Grace Community Church, and another pastor had it before he had it, and uh, they brought John in and they said, listen, you come highly recommended. We'd like you to pastor our church. He looked around first to see what the church board had the first pastor doing, and they noticed that the first pastor was doing most of the administration, most of the visitation, the hospital visitation, lots of the counseling, uh, just on and on and on, and had very little time for preparing his message. And that was obligatory put on him by the church board. John MacArthur had a meeting with the church board and said, I have discovered that you don't want me as your pastor. He said, yes, we do. We really want you. He said, no, if I come as your pastor, I won't be doing any of these things. I'll be studying the Word. I'll give myself to the ministry of the Word of God in prayer. And he quoted Acts chapter 6. When there was a dispute among the Hellenists and the Hebrew woman because there wasn't the uh, daily distribution quite correct the way they wanted it in Jerusalem, they complained to the apostles. you remember what the apostles said? So why should we leave the Word of God and serve tables? It's more fitting that we devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word and let's select other people who can do this and would love to do it and are called by the Lord to do it, who want a place to work in the body of Christ and have a ministry to perform in the body. And let's let, just let them go for it. But we will give ourselves or devote ourselves continually, incessantly to the ministry of God and prayer. And it says God blessed it and the church began to grow. That, I believe is the primary calling of a pastor-teacher of a church. Though I try to balance my time and make uh, appointments for uh, some when I need to and so forth, most of my time is spent in the study of the Word of God. Charles Spurgeon used to say that he would give himself to about an hour of study for every minute he taught. If he taught 20 minutes or half an hour, he'd, speak, he would, uh, he'd be studying about 20 to 30 hours throughout the week. That's about how much time I like to spend on my Sunday morning message. But Charles Spurgeon was, was once asked to speak, and he said, now, he was talking, uh, recalling this story to his students. He said, if you want me to speak for 20 minutes, I need to spend about 20 hours studying. If you want me to speak for 45 minutes... I need about 10 hours of study. If you want me to speak for about an hour and a half or two hours, I'm ready to go right now. You see, it takes preparation to make the salient points from the Scripture and hear the word of the voice of God on these various topics in a short period of time. For instance, you turn on CNN. They're able to cover the entire world news in 30 minutes. And they don't go in depth, but they prepare it and they have people out on assignment. That 30-minute segment 
It takes a lot of preparation. Now they go, oh, it's easy. They just get out to the cameras, take a few pictures, satellite them in, get on there and talk. But it takes, it's quite an operation if you've ever seen a newsroom. And so Paul was constrained by the Spirit, or he was absorbed with his message as soon as he had the time to do it. And uh, we're going to see that it paid off here, and there was quite a lot of fruit. Well, our time's just about up. And uh, next time we'll read about, uh, we'll finish the chapter because we'll highlight it. We've given you the background of Corinth and a tour of Jerusalem. And next time we'll speak about the opposition and uh, what happened as the result of the, uh, the ministry there at Corinth. But I thought I would uh, share with you something that was in Ann Landers' news article. Not that Ann Landers is always filled with biblical inspiration, but there was a letter in a paper that I thought was kind of, uh, kind of interesting. Dear Ann Landers, the enclosed was circulated in church this morning. It's an eye-opener for people who change churches or quit going because they think the pastor isn't doing enough. Please print it. It's more than just funny. Uh, signed, Indiana. <laughs> Dear Indy, it's a gem. Thanks for sharing. Here it is. The perfect pastor. Results of a computerized survey indicate the perfect pastor preaches exactly 15 minutes. He condemns sin, but is never embar- or, but he never embarrasses anyone. He works from 8 in the morning until midnight and is also the janitor. He makes $60 a week, wears good clothes, drives a new car, and gives $50 a week to the poor. He's 28 years old and has been preaching for 25 years. He's wonderfully gentle and handsome, loves to work with teenagers, and spends countless hours with senior citizens. He makes 15 calls a day on parish families, shut-ins, and hospital patients, and he's always in his office when needed. If your pastor does not measure up, simply send this letter to six other parishes that are tired of their pastors too. Then bundle up your pastor and send him to the church at the top of the list. In one week, you will receive 1,643 pastors. One of them should be perfect. (laughs) Oh, I love it. God has given each of us a calling. Some of us, it could be a pastor. Some of us, it could be just a servant or a helper. The New Testament calls it, it uses the word diaconi, deacon helping with the physical needs of the body. Some of you have the gift of hospitality. Some of you have the gift of evangelism. But you have a gift. And whichever gift you have, give yourself to it. Tap into what it is. I asked a person a couple of weeks ago because I saw some real potential in his life. I said, where do you think your life is going? He said, you know, if, I don't know. I said, well, what gifts do you think you have? He says, you know, I feel ashamed, but I don't think I could name my spiritual gifts. I don't think I know. Well, if you don't, don't be ashamed. Just be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Find out what God has for you. Ask people who are close to you, maybe whom you disciple or who disciple you or who are friends, hey, what do you think my gifts are? Where do you see me fitting? They might say, well, boy, every time you explain a Bible passage, it comes alive. Maybe you have the gift of teaching. or Boy, you have a a real compassionate heart for people, and you really get people moving. Maybe you have the gift of exhortation, encouragement. On and on. But tap your gift. Discover it. 
and then give yourself to it. That doesn't necessarily mean that you will be full-time in the ministry like Paul after he got to Corinth. It could mean that you'll be Aquila and Priscilla. That you'll be those faithful people without whom any ministry could never survive. I said it before, I will say it again. We live in the day of layman's liberation, folks. It is the day when the church layman is liberated to do the work of the ministry. I'm a layman. I'm no more a trained minister than you are. And if God can use me, God can certainly use you. And God has His place for you. And it's time to just submit ourselves to that and say, Lord, I'm ready to go for it. I will be constrained by the Spirit and give myself to it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we saw that Paul went to Corinth. His heart was burdened. In a very dark city, he gave himself. He was constrained by the Spirit to what he was called to. And Lord, as he labored, and devoted himself to the calling you placed on his life, we offer ourselves to you this evening. We thank you, Lord, that the Word of God is sounding forth from this place all over our community by the labor of these people, by your sheep taught, fed, going out and reproducing. Lord, I pray that you'd anoint them and strengthen them encourage them. Let them know, Lord, that You are with them and that with Your strength nothing is impossible. And we pray, Father, as we avail ourselves to You, we might discover our gifts and live a life that You have intended for us. We look, Lord, for exciting things as You unfold Your plan in our lives. Whatever it may be, Lord, we submit to You. In Jesus' name.